Please take your Bible, turn to the book of First Peter, chapter 2. And this morning we're going to begin where we left off last Sunday at verse 13. And we're going to look at verses 13 through 17, which will serve as the basis for the morning message. Today I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible and ask you to follow in whichever version of the Bible you have with you today. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Prior to 9-11, our nation's greatest domestic tragedy, it was an act of terrorism, took place on April the 19th, 1995. It was done in Oklahoma City when Timothy McVeigh, with two accomplices, helped set off a car bomb that resulted in the death of 165 innocents and 600 others were wounded, some maimed for life as a result of that act of terror. McVeigh didn't see it that way, nor did his accomplices. They saw it as an act of patriotism. And interestingly, these three men were part of a loose confederation in the United States, numbering approximately 100,000 at that time, who had some loose connection with the Christian faith. The question for us is, are such people really Christian patriots? Are they even patriots at all? Is it possible to be a Christian patriot? Is it okay to be a Christian patriot? John Adams answers that last question by saying, a patriot must be a religious man. The second president of our United States, who was in fact a devout Christian, made this comment. This passage of Scripture talks about Christian patriotism, and I'd like to begin by looking at the explanation of Christian patriotism, which is given in this passage of Scripture. It begins with the first part of verse 13. It comes in the form of a command, submit yourselves. This word, submit yourselves, is a word which, by virtue of its tense, suggests once and for all, settle the fact that you're going to be committed to being submitted to the authorities that God has placed over you. It's something Peter was emphasizing and that the Spirit of God would emphasize to us today if we are indeed committed followers of Jesus Christ. The word translated submit means to rank oneself under. This act of submission to the human institutions which God has placed over us, is something that we do voluntarily. It's not forced upon us. But if indeed we are submitted to the Lordship of Jesus, this is part of the package of such submission. The text tells us that we are to live as free men, in verse 16, to act as free men. 
freedom that we have in Christ must not be used in excuse for doing evil. Freedom is easily perverted and can be into license. And we need to understand this. Notice to whom we are to submit ourselves in verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. For example, to the king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him. And in Peter's day, the king who was reigning at this time was Nero. I don't need to tell you about the infamous Nero. We'll talk a little bit more about some of the details of his reign a bit later. But he was anything but a friend to the Christian church. He, in fact, was an arch enemy from the world's perspective. But God instructs these people who were under the tyranny, not just the reign, but the tyranny of Nero, to submit themselves even to him, to the king as the one in authority, and to those whom that king himself had appointed as governors to help enforce the law throughout the Roman Empire. What does that have to do with us today? We are to submit ourselves to the authorities God has placed over us. If we are citizens of the United States, it would be to our president, to the vice president, to those in the Senate, the House of Representatives, to the government. We are to submit ourselves to the human institutions because we know that it is God who has put those people in places of authority. We're going to look in a moment again at Romans 13. But to name a few, we are to submit ourselves to the Internal Revenue Service. Every time a candidate for president says, I'm going to abolish the IRS, I say, hooray, I love it. Let's get rid of them. But until such time, I'm to submit myself to the Internal Revenue Service. Certainly to our law enforcement officers, our local police. We are to submit ourselves to them. When you're pulled over... For speeding, instead of trying to make up some lame excuse as to why you were speeding, or to be very sullen and maybe even say something like this, why don't you spend your time apprehending real criminals instead of me? Have you ever tried that one before? I'll never forget when I was a pastor on the east side way back in the dark ages, a friend of mine came named Mark Brister a dear brother in the Lord, a great preacher of the gospel, to preach to our church. He was with us for almost a week. And after one evening event, we were going to eat something. He went in his car. I went in my car. And as he was going ahead of me, all of a sudden I saw this red light behind him and pull him over. He was speeding. And he had the audacity. I cannot believe this. I would never do this. But he had the audacity to talk his way out of a ticket. He said, my name is Mark Brister. I'm preaching at the Vista Hills Baptist Church. And I have had a great week in the Lord. And would you please forgive me of speeding? <laughs> he took the name of the Lord his God in vain. There's no doubt about it. And he didn't have to pay a ticket. I would have just said, okay, officer, you caught me. I was speeding. What do you do? In a situation like that, do you honor the police officer who has pulled you over? We're to honor those whom God has placed 
in these human institutions to maintain law and order. Whether it's in the state, in the household, in the family, whatever God has placed over us in terms of authorities, we are to make a habit of submitting to those individuals because it is he who has established their authority and put them in places of authority. Let's go to Romans 13, as promised, and look again at what we read earlier. Allow me to comment a bit on some of the statements which are found, especially in the first part of the 13th chapter. Romans 13:1 says, Let every person, without exception, all of you, if you know Jesus Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are included in this injunction. Let every person be in subjection. And the tense of the verb is continually be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. When I disobey the authorities which God has placed over me, who am I actually disobeying? I'm disobeying God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it, it's talking about the governing authority, is a minister of God to you for your good. Now here's one you can use on the police officer officer, the next time he pulls you over. You can say, thank you, officer, for doing the will of God. (laughs) It's true, isn't it? And you can say to that officer, officer, you are a minister of God. Did you know that? And that officer will look at you and probably shake his head or her head and say, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. But indeed, they are officers of the Lord, ministers of God. I like to tell people who are in law enforcement or other places of authority, do you know, or the military, do you know that you're a minister of God? Amen. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. That's talking about the authorities which God has placed over us. It is a minister of God. He's reiterating. God only has to say one thing for it to be true. But if he says it, especially in close proximity twice, about something, we need to pay careful attention. An avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Could it be more plain what our responsibility is to those authorities whom God has placed over us? We are to submit to them as if we were submitting to the Lord because He is the one who has set these authorities up. We are to act as free men Verse 16 says, but we are to use the freedom as bond slaves of God. This is what empowers us to live out 
this truth in obedience to the institutions. We are slaves of God. We have set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. And He gives us the power to be men and women who live in such submission. The Scripture says in verse 17, we are to fear God. Keep on fearing God. If we fear God, this is what the fear of God really comes down to. It's simple to understand. It's rather complex and nebulous when we just look at this statement, fear God. But in Psalm 112, this is what the Bible says, how blessed is the person who fears God. And then there's a clear definition of who is indeed a God-fearing person who greatly delights in His commands. And that would include the command that we're looking at today, that we're to subject ourselves to the human institutions which God has placed over us. We are greatly blessed if we do so. And Romans 13 actually discusses that blessing, as we've just read it, because God has set up these authorities to punish those who do wrong. We might call it God's restraining grace. In a book entitled Healing Grace by David Seamond, I'm not sure if Mr. Seamond is still alive, but his writings have been helpful for me over the years. He tells about an event which took place in 1948 when he was serving as a missionary in India. During that time, India had become an independent nation. And all the individual states, which are many in the nation of Israel, came together and unified around the new government of India, except for one, Hyderabad, the state of Hyderabad. And for a period of time, there was no authority in that particular state. And in the little town, and little is the right word, 35,000 people, in that little town of 35,000 people where Seaman and his family were serving the Lord, there was anarchy There was no government just for a short period of time, actually 24 hours. And he said it was frightening for the law-abiding citizens. There was looting, there was robbing, there was killing, there was violence. Some of you, I haven't seen these movies, and I don't recommend them to anybody based on what little I know of them. But The Purge, some of you, don't tell me if you've seen it, it'll ruin my image of you if if I know you've seen it. And then The Purge election year, which just came out. Recently, it didn't stay long at the theater, which tells you it was not a popular movie. But the whole idea, I read it on the Internet, is that once a year in the future, there would be one 12-hour period when the police could do nothing to stop any kind of crime and the purge of people who were undesirable in the culture could take place with impunity. That's a terrible thought, isn't it? Anarchy. Have you ever been in an anarchical situation? I have been close to one in my teenage years for a short period of time. It was frightening. But the law, what we would call the law, God has established, has a way of curbing such outbreaks of anarchy. God has set up these authorities to commend those who do right. Now, I must say, I have never been commended by a public official for doing what is right. And there are probably some public officials present in the room, either local, state, or federal officials who are law 
enforcement. Look, if you're such an officer, find somebody to encourage who's doing right. This is part of your responsibility. And it's very encouraging when that happens. Why are we to submit ourselves to these human institutions? Well, look back at verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. This is speaking of Jesus. When the New Testament writers talk about the Lord without giving any further designation, without exception, they're talking about Jesus. So in this case, think about Jesus. Was Jesus respectful of the human institutions which were placed over him? Do we ever sense any disrespect from him? None. It's for his sake. Remember, we are identified as his followers. So if we act unbecomingly, what's that going to do in terms of reflecting upon him? It's going to reflect poorly upon him. That's what it does. So we must be very careful in this matter. Let me read to you what a Nepalese pastor said many years ago now. There was a time in Nepal, which today I'm told the church of Jesus Christ is moving forward faster and stronger than in any other nation in the world. But there was a time, at the time that this Nepalese pastor makes this comment, there was a time when baptizing someone resulted in the person who was being baptized as well as the baptizer being imprisoned just for baptizing someone. And one pastor who had been in prison for doing just that was asked this question about submission to a government that was heavy-handed and anti-Christian. Listen to what he said. Of course, I must obey my Lord and spread His Word. Even though we're persecuted, we pride ourselves on being the best citizens the King has. We should pride ourselves in America as being the best citizens, I'm talking about we who know Jesus, the best citizens America has. Remember, we are primarily citizens of heaven. Do you understand this? Philippians 3.20 says our citizenship is in heaven. That's our primary citizenship. But we are, by virtue of our birth, if you're an American, we are citizens of the United States of America. We should be the very best citizens we can possibly be. So the answer to the question, why submit ourselves? It's for the Lord's sake. Not to dishonor Him, to reflect well on Him, recognizing that His kingdom is not of this world. But the Scripture goes on to say, not only for the Lord's sake, but it says in verse 15, for such is the will of God. It's God's will. That by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now, who are these foolish men? If you look back up at verse 12, we looked at this last week, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds as they observe them, namely the good deeds, glorify God in the day of visitation. And this is referring to the day of visitation. We saw it last week. The word visitation, when you look at the way in which this particular word, not in English, but in the original language, is used in the New Testament. It's always used of the visitation of the Holy Spirit to a person 
witnessing to Jesus Christ, resulting in that person committing himself or herself to Jesus Christ. So what is the background? The background here of our becoming agents for the Lord is that we do good deeds in response, if not reaction to slander that people have to say about us. And what we will do by doing the will of God in this, we will silence the ignorance of foolish men. Perhaps you saw, I was pointed out to me by one of the people in our church last week, that something took place in my native state, in Knoxville, Tennessee, in East Tennessee, which is in the Bible Belt, if you haven't figured that out. A person who owns two stores, the Cedar Springs Christian Stores, two branches in Knoxville, decided to shut one down because business was not so good and consolidate effort in the one primary store. And in order to liquidate the goods in that one particular store that was shutting down, put an ad in the New Sentinel, a Gannett Press newspaper. And the ad was bought. It was to be in the classified section in the latter part of the week, I think it was the 28th of July. And, of course, what would an owner of a business do that morning? Open the paper and read the ad make sure it was right. When this owner opened the paper, she did not see any evidence of the ad. And she called the person with whom she had communicated about buying the ad, called and asked, why wasn't the ad in the paper? Do you know what the answer was? It had offensive language in it. And she said, offensive language? What would that be? And the person on the other end of the line said, it had the word Christian in it. Wow, this is in the United States of America. This is in my home state. This is what's coming, friends. It's coming. It's already here. And we need to... This is one of the reasons I chose this book to teach out of. Because this book has so much to say about how we are to act in a world that is becoming more and more aggressively anti-Christ. Now, we know the world has always been anti-Christ. The world hates Christ, right? We know that. And Jesus said, don't be surprised if they hate you. Why? Because they hated me before they hated you. But what is the proper response? It's not to lash out at people. It's to do good deeds toward the people who actually mistreat us. Love your enemies is what Jesus says. This is tough, isn't it? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know what I want to do? I want to just slug them. <laughs> when I hear stuff like that, I just it just makes my blood boil. I don't know about you. But we need to back off And see what the Word of God says. And let God do the fighting for us. This is what God said. Remember when Israel had been liberated from bondage? They had made their way from the place of captivity to the shore of the Red Sea. Here comes Pharaoh with his crack forces, his charioteers. And they're bearing down upon them. 
And, of course, the Jews were very nervous, as you and I would be, for sure. They had some arms, but they were no match for this marvelous army of the Pharaoh. And this is what God said to them. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be still. The word translated still, some of the translations translated silent. And those translations are right on. Silent. It depends upon the context of the usage of this Hebrew word translated still. Sometimes it means to be silent. Other times, depending upon the context, it means to be deaf. We need to, in a sense, be deaf, but silent. Because the Bible says that a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word does what? It stirs up anger. It makes things worse instead of better. We've got to learn to let God fight for us. And do you know where our best fighting takes place? On our knees. Exactly. Thank you, Kevin. On our knees before the Lord. Humbled before God. Doing what He's called us to do. Doing good includes showing respect to everyone. Look at verse 17. This is interesting. Honor all men. Not just believers. All men. Even those who are detractors, even those who are aggressively anti-Christian, honor them. Don't agree with them. We're going to get to that in a little bit. Don't agree with them. But indeed, we are to honor all men. That's what the Word of God tells us to do. And we are, in fact, to do that. And then the next part of that verse in 17 says, Love the brotherhood. We are to love one another. This is the key. The brotherhood, Peter does not use the word church in either of his books. This word brotherhood is his way of speaking in the church because the church is comprised of people who are children of God, brothers and sisters. And both words, depending on whether it's used in the masculine form, Adelphos, or the feminine form, Adelpha, literally in both cases, cases the words mean from the same womb. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we are to love each other sacrificially. That in itself is a powerful witness to people who are on the outside looking in, trying to spy out something about us to criticize us and to hurt us. So this is the explanation of Christian patriotism. It's a tall order, isn't it? But it's doable. Why? Because God has commanded it. Do we want to be obedient to the Lord? Or just do what we prefer to do? We are obedient to the Lord. And we are people who are committed to that. Now let's look at the exception to Christian patriotism. Perhaps you know the name Sir Thomas More. He was quite a leader in 16th century England. And Moore was in opposition, as he should have been, to the shenanigans of Henry VIII, whom he served loyally and loved. And when Henry VIII finally wrangled away that he could be done with Catherine of Aragon, his wife, to have her divorce, actually looked for an annulment, got rid of her because he had his eye on another woman 
who was probably already with child by him, and Bolin. And he formed, with the help of some clerics in England, the Church of England, and he named himself, in effect, the Supreme Head of the Church of England. And he called on all people in England to sign an oath of supremacy of his rule in the nation, or to at least give the oath. When it came for more to sign, he would not do it. You know what it cost him? It cost him his life. And this is what he said before he died. I am a servant of the king, but God's first. I'm a servant of God first. Higher authority must take priority over lower authority. Who is our God? We sang about it. He is the King of kings, reflecting what the Bible says in 1 Timothy 6.15. Speaking of God, He is the blessed and sovereign God. Do you know what sovereign means? It means top dog. That's what it means. And our God is the sovereign. He is the sovereign God. He is the King of kings. It is He. It has been substantiated in more than one place already today. He is the one who puts people in authority. He is the one to whom these kings will answer. He is the King of kings. And if and when we as followers of Jesus Christ are called to disobey God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit... What recourse do we have? We have no recourse except to obey Christ. If obedience to a human authority would violate my allegiance to my King, Jesus, I must obey Christ at all costs. You recall, probably, how Peter and John were called on the carpet for preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus. They were called on the carpet by the Sanhedrin, the ruling body within Israel in their day. They were told, we command you neither to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. And then these men, whom they knew, according to an earlier statement in the same chapter of Acts, to be uneducated, ordinary men, but they also witnessed that they had been with Jesus. And that threatened those people because it was a threat to their power and to their whole conception of what it meant to be a follower of God. But do you remember what they said in response to that? He said, whether it is right, Peter and John, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you or to God, you be the judge. But we cannot help but speak of Him whom we have seen and heard. There may come a time, already in Russia, I'm told, in Russia, just this month, there was a law that was passed that restricts any conversation about God except in a house of worship like this. In other words, if you went out to the restaurant today, if you were in Russia, and afterwards you began to talk about the message, you would be in violation of the law and subject to fine and imprisonment. And if anybody overheard you talking about the Lord in Russia today, it's not too surprising there, but we need to understand this is not too far away from 
our lives if God doesn't send a revival in this nation beginning in the church of Jesus Christ. But if I even, as a Russian, overheard another Russian talking at the next table at a restaurant about Jesus, about the Lord, then I would be guilty if I didn't report it to the authorities. Can you believe that? This world is antagonistic toward the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we need to be alert to that and be willing to not be muzzled by any man-made law when it comes to talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Civil authorities are to be obeyed unless they set themselves in opposition to divine law. Augustine said this, an unjust law is no law at all. This can lead to civil disobedience. That is, our saying, we must obey God, as Peter and John said later in the book of Acts, we must obey God rather than men. If we're forced to, we must obey God rather than men. We must be willing in the 21st century in America to be civilly disobedient. That means the church is to hold the state to moral account. That's what it means. Do you know the church has really weakened, watered down its message and authority by wedding itself to politics because we, we lose our prophetic voice when we get too closely associated with some politician or some group of politics. And I know I'm stepping on some people's toes here, but it's the truth. And the Bible says in the book of Psalm 118, it says, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. We trust in the Lord our God. That's whom we have been called. To trust is what the Scriptures are very clear. When is it justified for me to be civilly disobedient? Well, let me give you some answers to this question. When the government tries to take over the role of the church or allegiance due only to God... Daniel is a perfect example of this. In the sixth chapter of Daniel, remember that Darius, the king of the Medes and the Persians, came into power. And 120 satraps, these were governors all over the vast empire of the Medes and the Persians, got together and they did not like Daniel. Is it any surprise? Why? He was a follower of the one true God. He made them look bad. Light exposes darkness, right? I like what Ironside says, Harry Ironside says, where there's light, there's bugs, right? And there, there, there is opposition. And they got together and came up with a law that for 30 days, anyone who prayed to any other god other than Darius would be thrown into the lion's den. Of course, Daniel was not part of that conversation. He was like the governor over them. So they took this to Darius, and you can imagine how this pandered to his pride. He thought, yeah, that sounds like a great idea, and he signed it into law, and the law of the Medes and the Persians, once it's signed, it can't be rescinded. And so when Daniel found out about the signing of this decree into law, what did he do? He did what he had always done. Three times a day, he went to his house, 
There were two stories to it. He went to the upper chamber. There was a window which was facing Jerusalem. He got down on his knees and he prayed three times a day, just like he'd always done. He was not going to be bullied into doing something that would contradict what God wanted. And that would be true for you and me too. That would be a time for civil disobedience. We know the rest of the story. He was thrown in the lion's den and he came out alive. Not a scratch on him. That's not always the case. We know history is replete with examples of people who refused to give homage to the state over homage to the Lord. Now let me just tell you a story. It captured my heart. I'd never heard of this man before until I was preparing for the message. His name is Jacinius. And fast forward two centuries to another cruel Roman Empire as it related especially to followers of Christ. His name was Diocletian. And Jacinius had been raised in a Christian home, but he had wandered away. He was an actor, and he was given the role of playing someone who was really making fun of, we would say, satirizing the Christian church and followers of Christ. And he cried out in the middle of his presentation, remembering he was disparaging Christians. I want to, this is what he said, I want to receive the grace of Christ that I may be born again and be set free from the sins which have been my ruin. Do you know who was in the audience when he said that? Diocletian, the emperor, was in the audience. The crowd was stunned. Silence. They'd been laughing because of all the fun that was being made of followers of Christ. And then Jacinius fearlessly proclaiming as his faith cried out as he looked to where the emperor was sitting. He said, Illustrious emperor and all of you who have laughed loudly at this parody, believe me, Christ is the true king. Wow. And this did not move Diocletian except to order that he be burned almost to the inch of death and then beheaded. Before he died, this is what he said. Not Diocletian, but Jacinius. There is no king except Christ, whom I have seen and whom I worship. For him I will die a thousand times. I am sorry for my sin and for becoming so late a soldier of the true king. He was late coming to Christ, but he went out pretty strongly, didn't you? Didn't he? Wouldn't you say? So here's one time that civil disobedience is justified. If the government tries to take over the role of the church or allegiance due to only the Lord in my life or our lives. Here's the second answer to that question. When the state restricts freedom of conscience. And back to the Nepalese pastor that I quoted, I stopped the quote in mid-quote, but let me finish it up. Speaking of the Nepalese Christians who were very few in number at the time, we try to be faithful to the fullest extent to our king. They had a monarch at the time. We love our country, and he paused, but we love our God more. Do you love your God more than you love the United States of America or whatever country you're a part of? That's what we must insist upon in our lives. Here's the third answer to the question. 
when the state ignores its God-given duty to preserve life and maintain order and justice. When the state becomes the very thing that God ordained the state for to enforce justice, then we have a right to be civilly disobedient. I'll give you an example or two of this. In pre-World War II Germany, the church, state church, was in cahoots, became more and more in cahoots with the state itself. And the result of that was that a group of brave people formed an alternative church, the Confessing Church. Among those was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Many of you have heard of his name. Some of you have read the biography on his life. And he became part of an effort to rid the nation of Hitler because it was taking the nation of Germany, if not the entire world, down in flames. The Civil Rights Movement under Martin Luther King. The Right to Life Movement. It still has a little life left in it, but it's been worn down after over 45 years of negativity aimed in its direction and in its attempt to protect the life of the unborn. How is this civil disobedience to be carried out? Well, we must avoid breaking just laws to protect unjust laws. We must resort to other means rather than force, if at all possible. That's the last resort. In some cases, like in the case of Bonhoeffer and those who sought to do away with Hitler, that would be something that would be acceptable. And we are to accept punishment, as Peter and John did. There's never a hint. Peter never says anything ugly about Nero here, does he? Peter had been beaten by the government officials. And Paul was also, as was the group of friends of Daniel in Daniel 3, where they refused to obey the command of Nebuchadnezzar and they were thrown into the fiery furnace. They accept their punishment in dependence upon the Lord. Martin Luther King himself spent jail time more than once as he moved forward in trying to get civil rights for all people. Rightly exercised, civil disobedience is divine obedience. Well, let me just wrap up with this simple statement. Citizens of God's kingdom should be patriots patriots in the highest sense. Loving the world by loving those in their country because that government is ordained by God to preserve order and justice. But we put the Lord first always we put him first in our personal lives and in the way in which we live this life, remembering what we saw last week, that God has called us to a beautiful life. Twice in verse 12, look again. Verse 12, keep your behavior excellent. The word translated excellent is the word for good. Kalos is the word. It means beautiful. Keep your life beautiful. Among the Gentiles, 
so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds, it's the identical word in the original language, call us again, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, we are to live this life out in dependence upon the Lord, adhering to and adjusting our lives to the Word of God, not our opinion. And then let God do what He is expert at doing, using the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for the instruction of Your Word. Father, today I'm thinking of brothers and sisters all over the world who are suffering because of their identification with You. And our hearts go out to them. Our prayer is, Father, that You would make us men and women who follow You and take great joy in fearing You more than we fear anything or any person or anything, any institution fearing You most. And part of that fear, we know according to what we've learned today, is to be subject to the human institutions that You have placed over us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.